You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. On this day, we are amazed at your plans and that we're a part of them and that Jesus, all you did, all you went through for us and how you've broken through all the limitations of this world that we placed on ourselves that we caused and you give us unlimited love, limitless joy and peace and hope. So this day, Lord, we pray not only for us here in this room, but for the Christians across this world, over two billion strong, who are celebrating your resurrection today. We pray, Lord God, that you would move in such a way that this world would come to know your sacrifice, your love, your mercy, your grace, and that we would be united in you and that you'd bring us all together, Lord. In this world of conflict, you'd bring your peace. In this world of hatred, you'd bring your love. In this world of just injustice, that you would bring your forgiveness and grace. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's great to be here this day. We are finishing um, this series today, The Genius of Jesus. And you can follow along with the notes in the U version of the Bible. You can kind of read the instructions there. And we're going to be looking at the resurrection chapter. Uh, that is First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. And um, we're reading along there a few of the verses, not the whole chapter, though it's all good. uh, We're starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that it is accepted who put all things in subjected under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So we are concluding this series, The Genius of Jesus, and today, that word just blows apart and breaks apart. It just can't fit everything that Jesus is. It's impossible. It's not that we are looking at Jesus who is a little smarter than the rest of us. It's not that he is three deviations ahead of us on any test scores. No, he is in a whole different, whole different category 
fully human, but fully God. And today we see that. So we can't compare him to even someone like Einstein. We don't think he's anything like Confucius. It's not that he is um, as genius as Marie Curie or Michelangelo, the artist, or even Aristotle, the philosopher. He is way beyond every category that we could name. He is beyond all comparison. Even among religious leaders and religious founders, he is not to be compared to Zoroaster or even Buddha or Mohammed. He is more than a prophet. He's more than a king. He's more than a priest. He's even better than any other biblical figure or all of them put together. You cannot, he is more wise than Solomon. He is greater than Moses. He's Jesus. Jesus. Now, Paul, who is sharing this message with the Corinthians, is a guy who thought he wasn't sure what to make out of Jesus. In fact, when he first met Jesus, he took offense at him. When he first met Jesus, when he first heard of Jesus, he thought, hey, if he's all, no. He thought, no way, no way could, Hosea, no way, (laughs) none at all. He could not be what they are saying he is. He thought, because either Jesus is what he says he is and the resurrection is what it is, or he is worthless and even beyond worthless, he is dangerous to follow. And Paul thought it was dangerous to follow him. In fact, he went after everyone who was following him to try to quash this movement, this sectarian movement he thought that was started. It made no sense to his monotheistic religion of Judaism. This is absolutely horrendous. But he had a 180. Everything changed. Everything changed. So when Paul was later writing about how amazing the resurrection is, how beyond, he he had a hard time even putting it into words. In the book of Ephesians, when he talks about that resurrection power that is existing in our lives and that permeates now the universe through what happened in Jesus Christ, he wrote this in Ephesians 1 verse 19 in the Greek. It says this, megathos te dunameos You want to repeat that after me? No. Okay, I understand that. But you can kind of even see in the Greek, translating it into the English, you can even see some of the words that we use today. Hooper. Any idea? Super or hyper. Yes. And balloon is to cast, to throw out. So it's hyper beyond, super beyond, megaton, mega, and dynamite, dynamias. This is his super amazing, hyper beyond megaton dynamite power that is at work in us. That's what he is saying today. The resurrection isn't a resuscitation. It is not bringing alive back to the way things were. Yes, other people faced resurrection in the Old Testament and New Testament. We've got a few hints of it here and there. But these people who were raised to life were raised to the same life that they just had. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, starts a whole new chapter, a whole new life, a a life now that he will never die again. A life that opens up a whole new world for us all. It shatters every category, so genius is not enough. There is no other category. So Paul would say, if this resurrection is true, 
it's worth everything. And if it's not true, well, then forget about the whole thing. It's all a waste. It's one or the other. There's no in-between. And that's how he kind of goes about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He lays out the case for the resurrection. Now, a number of commentators have mentioned, they're just kind of amazed at how um, argumentative Paul is in this letter, in this section, or um, how much deductive reasoning he's using all the way through. It's just amazing. If you read through it, it's like boom, 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 boom. He's taking one step at a time, and it's very logical and rational. Exactly. Why? Well, because it's, it goes beyond words. And also, just think of it. Paul, of all people in this entire world, he would be the last person you would ever expect to fall down and worship a human being. Do you understand? Because he was a conservative, strict, pharisaical Jew in the first century who knew the history of Israel and who knew the idolatry that had happened in the past. And there is no way we're going to repeat that. We got exiled for that and came back. There is no way. In fact, in the first century, in, I think even in Judaism today, so many do not want to say the name of or write the name of God down because they're afraid if you say it just the wrong way. And here, Paul, all of a sudden, is worshiping as God this human being named Jesus. The only explanation is the resurrection that blew away all the limits, all the preconceived ideas, all of the categories that Paul had, and all of a sudden, Jesus is limitless for Paul. So, the argument for the resurrection, it not only touched Paul's imagination and mind, but his heart, his life, his conscience, everything, and it transformed it all. And we're going to be looking at this passage and walking through it just a little, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, maybe it'll change us a bit too, okay? So there are three ways that I think that we're going to be looking at this passage. First of all, we're going to be reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this, if Christ has not been raised, we are to be considered false witnesses, and that is the appeal to our mind. Later on in verse 17, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins, and that is the appeal to your conscience. And finally, in verse 32, after what we had read, Paul says, if the dead aren't raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the appeal to the heart. But first, the appeal to the mind. Now, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, the first nine verses start out with laying out basically the historical evidence or the historical presuppositions of why he believes in the resurrection. And there are three interlocking parts to this. They all fit together. The first thing occurs in verse 4 where he says, and Jesus was buried and then on the third day rose again. Basically, the tomb was empty. That's his first argument. The tomb was empty. It was empty when the stone was already, do you realize it was empty before the stone was rolled away? It wasn't after the, Jesus wasn't knocking on the other side of the stone, hey, get me out of here. He was already gone. 
And when the stone was rolled away and the soldiers who were there from the palace and uh, from the, uh, the temple were there, they had no explanation. The women had no explanation. Nobody had an explanation that made any logical sense except the tomb was empty. And do you realize both the critics and the witnesses of the resurrection said the same thing? wouldn't take anything to stop this whole movement in its tracks. All you had to do is find the body, find a part of the body, find some tampering with the body, find something. And every Roman leader in that area and every conservative Jewish leader in that area had every reason to find and track down and kill this movement off before it started. So, the first, the tomb was empty. The second, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. That's what Paul says. It's not just one or two people as if they had a hallucination, but hundreds, 500 at one time. Do you realize Paul was writing this letter only 16, 18, maybe 20 years after the actual event? Go talk to them, he would say. You're in Corinth. Hey, it's just across the Adriatic. It's not that far away. Go talk to them. You'll find hundreds of people who have seen with their own eyes, touched him, talked to him, been taught by him after his death, all saying the same thing. And the third, the third witness that he talks about are these transformed lives. Now, Paul would have never been able to make this argument only 20 years after the resurrection happened unless all of the witnesses who were still alive, and they all would have been still alive at the time, were there and were living lives in response. Not one, not one ever turned away from that faith and at great cost their own lives. Now, um, there's a brilliant theologian, philosopher, and historian. You've probably never heard of him. It's got one of those wonderful German names, Wolfhart. Anybody you know who's named Wolfhart? No. Wolfhart Pannenberg. Okay? He died, I think, in 1974 or so, but he really... Um, as a 20th century individual brought so many amazing things to bear. And he said, and he wrote, the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitnesses really existed. All it would take to disprove this whole thing is a shred of evidence against it. All it would take is one of these hundreds of witnesses say, I, I don't know about that. Just one all it would take, never happened. And this is a resurrection movement. If you read in the book of Acts, you could see immediately from just 40 days after all the way on, Christianity is a resurrection movement through and through. Again and again, they preach the same thing. Now, another theologian fleshes this out a lot more thoroughly. He wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, N.T. Wright. It is 900 and some pages long, and then there are footnotes and addendum, okay? It's worth the read, I'll tell you that, but it's a little long. Um, I got through it this spring, 
Um, while I'm doing the elliptical, I'm flipping through my iPad, reading it, highlighting it. And boy, taking 900 pages and trying to condense it down to exactly what he's saying, well, this is what his point is. So the empty tomb, these, all these eyewitnesses together form the kernel of truth that's behind it all. And critics from the beginning with people like Celsus back in the early 200s to today have tried to come up with a plausible explanation on how Christianity exploded on the scene and um, challenged every truth claim from Rome to Greece to Judaism to Egypt, every philosophy that was going on and succeeded to do so. When it comes out of nothing, when it doesn't make any sense, when you can't logically deduce resurrection from before this time period. And so this is what he finally writes as kind of a conclusion. It is noteworthy, despite the somewhat desperate attempts of many scholars over the last 200 years, that no such explanation has been found. That is, no other reason has been found except, wait a minute, how did they come up with this, right? Here he goes, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb in the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. They developed that faith because of the occurrence and convergence of these two phenomena. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversation, conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case we've presented, that the tomb plus appearances combination is what generated early Christian belief is as watertight as one is likely to find. Now, this might all just kind of leave you cold. You were coming to church to feel good today and to be uplifted and to be, um, you know, just appeal, you know, it's, it's bunnies, it's new life, it's flowers, rainbows and unicorns. That's what you were looking for and that's not what you're getting and you're going like, oh, come on, this is so... Or you might be saying, well, that's great. That's all that stuff, that history stuff, that apologetic stuff from 2,000 years ago. We're living in the 21st century, John. What am I supposed to do? Wait until I have a Damascus Road experience like Paul did to see the resurrected Christ? And he'd say, no, 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 you don't have to. No. I think we kind of know what Paul would say. I think we know what Paul would say because, well, he said it before. See, in the book of Acts, <clears throat> Paul is like, he goes through everything, man. He gets beaten, imprisoned, you know, time and again stoned, not with drugs, with actual stones. Can you imagine? And then he gets to the point where he's been arrested in Jerusalem and he is under arrest. He appeals to Caesar to go to Rome to make his case there. And on the way, he is taken over to Caesarea Philippi where the governor named Festus um, kind of is going to hear his case. And Festus is, you know, typical Roman. He doesn't understand anything that Paul's talking about because it's, you know, from Palestine, whatever that place is. But one day, Festus, who's the governor, who has Paul in prison yet awaiting to go to Rome, has a friend come, King Agrippa from Galilee. He was ruling over that area of Galilee. The two of them get together, have a nice, you know, whatever, hospitable time, and then Festus goes, hey, 
you know what, King Agrippa, you probably understand this guy because you're from that area. I've got this guy, Paul, from Tarsus in jail here. He was arrested in Rome. I'd like you to hear his case and kind of explain to me what's going on with this. So they bring him in front of the two of them and Paul starts to talk and he tells about Jesus and his birth and his life and then his death and then the resurrection. And at the moment he starts talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, this is what Festus says. We pick it up in Acts 26. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're bonkers, dude. Nobody would believe that. But this is how Paul responds. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and to whom I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, he's saying, hey, you think I'm balkers because your philosophy would not allow for resurrection because that just doesn't happen. But I'm not talking philosophy. I'm talking history. I'm not talking about subjective experiences. I'm talking about objective reality. This isn't something that was done in a corner. By the way, King Agrippa, you understand this. You know the facts that I'm telling you are true. You know that the tomb was empty. You know that the guards try to make up a story. You know it didn't make any sense, that it was convoluted on itself. It was self-contradictory. You know the fact that there were hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection. You know all this. I didn't want to believe in Jesus either. I mean, everything that he's about was opposite of what I was about. I wanted to defeat him and destroy him. But I have to believe in him because of the resurrection. Now, Westerners these days in our postmodern world hate this kind of religion and this kind of talk. You've probably had conversations like this before, right? Hey, it's nice. Oh, you believe in Jesus? That's good. If it fulfills you, if it works for you, if it really helps, helps with you, that's your hopes and dreams and all. Fantastic. And Paul would say to that, that is hogwash. He might actually use other words like skubalon, the Hebrew word or a Greek word for manure. He's used that before because he says, I, didn't, I don't believe in Jesus because it fulfills me. In fact, he threatens me. He turns everything upside down in my life. He's the opposite of what I would have expected. I would have never believed in him because it's my hopes and dreams. And that's true for you too. I know this is not what you'd expect to hear in a sermon or a church Don't follow Jesus because he's going to fulfill your dreams and hopes. Don't follow him because you have a longing for eternal life or all that stuff. Because if that's all it is, then it's just a projection of your desires and wishes. Follow him because he's true. Study the facts. You account for the reality of this history. Figure that out. 
How in the world hundreds and hundreds of monotheistic, conservative Jewish people who would not even speak the name of God or write it down would all of a sudden come to the reality and bow down and worship a human being as God? The only thing that explains it is the resurrection. And why am I being this rational about all of this stuff? Why am I being so argumentative, you might say? Because your greatest need is not to have all your wishes and dreams and hopes fulfilled by Jesus. Your greatest need is for an objective reality greater than yourself who doesn't just fulfill your needs and wishes or dreams or expectations, but actually can contradict them. Because we are filled in this world with such subjective, it's taken over everything. It's just, how am I feeling? What am I thinking? You know, how do I perceive that? It's all about me, 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 me. And what happens is, do you understand how many times in my life I struggle with how I'm feeling about myself? what I've done or what I've said or I'm not sure. And I need an anchor outside of me, an objective reality, a truth that is true no matter what. And that is Jesus. No matter what, his resurrection. I don't care if I don't feel like he's resurrected today. He is. I don't care if I can't experience a high today because this is, it's, it's more important than how I feel, what I think, what I know. Okay? And because of that, he gives you fulfillment. W.H. Auden, anybody ever heard of him before? He's a poet, I know, maybe some of, he's one of the great English poets. Yeah, what does that mean? I know. But he's up there with Yeats and a couple others, right? There's only about three or four of them that are like, ooh, big guys. And he, um, he came to the United States. He was, grew up Christian. He became an atheist, kind of forsook it all. And then later in life, he came back to the Christian faith. And some of his friends were like, what in the world are you doing? Why would you go back to that? Huh, you're looking to have him fulfill your needs? And this is what he wrote to one of his friends who asked, I believe because he fulfills none of my dreams, because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Do you get it? He's saying, I got to deal with the reality of him. He's not what I would expect. That's basically what Paul was saying to Festus and to King Agrippa. And that's what Peter had to face. And I think that's what you and I have to face. Who is this Jesus? Is he what he says he is? Is he what he did? Is the resurrection a reality? Is it true in history or not? If it's true, it's worth everything. And if it's not, it's garbage and actually it's dangerous. That's the appeal Paul makes here. To the mind. Now, quickly, <laughs> seriously, through the appeal to the conscience. In verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Do you realize that Paul <sighs> probably murdered, executed numerous Christians before he was converted? 
He threw him in prison. He was dead set on wiping this out because it was the most terrible thing. So you tell me now, how does he get past his past? Because he happens to probably be chumming around now with friends of people he killed and relatives of people he put in prison. How do you get over that? He saw that if the resurrection is true, then what happens on the cross is exactly what everybody said, that the disciples said, that he died for the sins of the world. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was crying out in the agony of hell itself, being forsaken by God and carrying the sins of the world upon him. And when he cried out, it is finished, it is accomplished, it means he's paid it all. He didn't just pay for some of my sins or the, you know, the ones that aren't so bad. He didn't pay for most of them. He paid for absolutely all of them. He paid for more sins than I've got. He paid for the sins of the whole world. He paid for every rebellious act, every thought, every deed. And so every murderous thing that I did, Everything that I did has been taken care of already. It is limitless. That's how he got over his past. You are forgiven more sins than you got. That is the appeal of the conscience, that it is limitless forgiveness that we live in. Finally, the appeal to the heart. And this comes in verse 32. If the dead were not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So, you know... In other words, if the resurrection didn't happen, you are wasting your time at church today. It would have been better to get out before the crowds to go do that Easter brunch thing. But when you're there, don't think too deeply about your life or where it's going or how long you're going to live. Even if you are going to become the oldest person in the world who died yesterday at 117, the last person to be born in the 1800s, okay, Um, guess what? That's it. Just a few more decades, we're all gone. Do you got it? And I know I'm older than some of you, but you don't got much longer than me. Really, in the span of millions of years, it's a blip. So don't think too deeply about it. Just eat and drink and try to enjoy life because, man, it is pointless. It is useless. It doesn't make any sense. And that's what Paul says. But because of the resurrection, the opposite is true. It all matters. It all makes sense. It all fits together. It all has a conclusion. We have limitless hope and limitless potential and limitless direction because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we know that nothing now can separate us from God's love. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. I'm sure that not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think what people crave most, it's not money, it's not success, it's not significance, it's not power, it's not even food, it's not even the air we breathe, it is love. And when you are absolutely known with all your foibles, with all your mistakes, with all your struggles, with all your doubts, with all your concerns, and just, and that you're still loved, that you're fully loved and embraced, it's the most amazing thing, isn't it? And that's, God knows. He knows everything. He struggled through everything. He understands everything. He faced everything. 
There is no situation too dire, no sin too great, nothing that will ever get in the way of his love for you. Now, I know some of us here today, I don't know, I know people go to church on Easter because they're kind of pulled along, invited, whatever. And a lot of people may be in church on a day like today and, and, and you know, well, oh, the church is so full of hypocrites. And they're probably right, right? Well, let's face it, we know that. You know, they've been burned by the church. They look around, they look at organized religion and think it's a waste of time. And I can understand that. I can, I can attest to that. And you might look at us, even here at Thrive, and go like, wow, you make Ned Flanders on The Simpsons and looks like he's with it. You guys are troglodytes. You're just like not together. And people can be hypocritical and judgmental and all that stuff. We're a bunch of sinners. I'm not going to excuse any of that stuff, but that's not what we're dealing with today. It's not the church. It's not religion. It's not organized religion, which is never organized. It's none of that stuff. We're dealing with Jesus. We're dealing with Jesus. Is he real? Did he rise from the dead? Or did he not? Is what he says true? Or isn't it? Does it all fit? Or is it all to be thrown away? I love what Yaroslav Pelikan said. I know, somebody else you don't know. Um, he's dead too, but um, I love what he says. He said, if Christ has risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ has not risen, then nothing else matters. Do you get it? Yeah. If Christ has risen, nothing else really matters. That's the one fact, the one objective reality that makes everything worth it and everything makes sense. And our future is, is absolutely certain because of him. But if Christ has not risen, then everything else doesn't matter. It's pointless. It's useless. It's hopeless. It's forget about it. That's our choice today. Which one is it? We've got a God who is limitless. All categories, all our you know, frameworks are blown apart by the one reality. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God. Whew. Wow. Jesus, we can't hardly put into words the hyper super beyond all imagination beyond all expectations, the out-of-this-universe reality of what you've created, Lord, what you've done, and what you've accomplished through your life, death, and resurrection. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we look at you much more than a genius, much more than a prophet, much more than a king, much more than a leader, but as the all-in-all. And we pray, Lord, that you'd start a movement around this world that so desperately needs this good news and transformed hearts and lives and peace and reconciliation and hope, and that today, this Easter, would be the beginning of that, both for us and for them. So we offer ourselves to you, Lord. We fall down and worship you. We want to serve you completely. We want to learn more about you, your limitless love, forgiveness, and grace. Jesus, amen.